in some of the most stunning words in all of Matthew's gospel. You see in verse 34, Jesus make this statement that seems to go against everything we know about Jesus and what he stands for. Look at it again in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And this is in the context of a missionary discourse. As Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples for the first missionary enterprise, he tells them in verse 7, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is this proclamation, it is this message, it is going into the world and saying to that world, Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, repent of your sin and turn to Him in faith and trust. This message is a, a declaration of all-out war. Because when we preach this message, when the disciples preach this message, in essence what they're doing is entering into the domain of the enemy. They are storming the gates of hell itself. The preaching of Christ to the world is a sword that cuts through all things. It cuts through your relationships in this world. In sharing the gospel, you are going to break down the strongholds of hell. You are going to shine a light into the dark places of the world. And so, you would assume, and Jesus makes it clear, that when you do this, those who love the darkness, those who are held captive to the enemy, they will respond to you as you shine the light in their dark places. They will respond as you rattle the cages of their strongholds. Not only rattle them, but trample them over. They will respond. And perhaps you've felt it. Perhaps you at your Christmas dinner table have felt the response. You, rem you probably know it, right? As you sit around the dinner table at Christmas... And you start talking about your Lord, you start saying, Jesus is the reason for Christmas. We are here because we, we love the Lord. And somebody says, so I guess that means we're all going to hell, doesn't it there, you judgmental sap, you? Or as you're sitting at your Christmas dinner table, somebody that is close to you, somebody in your family says, so uh, who are you to tell me that the, the way I choose to live my life is sinful? And then all of a sudden, your table breaks out in chaos. And what ends up happening is everybody just wants to, let's just keep it quiet. Let's just keep religion out of our dinner table. Let's keep all of that just out because we'd rather just hold the peace. But the preaching of Christ in our homes, in our city, in our country, in our world will immediately draw tremendous opposition from the darkness. It will draw opposition from all corners as you and I march forward into Satan's domain. It means that those who are held by Satan's dread sway, those who are held captive by him will respond to you. And they will react strongly to you. And guess what? 
that response might not be comfortable. And it might come from people that you love deeply. And if it comes from people that you love deeply, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? That's where we're going to go today as we look at this text. And we're going to finish Matthew chapter 10, this missionary discourse, just kind of an overview of where we've been so far in the chapter. Jesus commanded the twelve in verse six, chapter 6 and 7 to go to the lot, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 6 to 7, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the first missionary enterprise. This is where he sends his disciples. And he sends them with a specific message to proclaim the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And like he sends these 12 disciples, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we realize that the sending is much larger than just the 12, but it extends to each and every one of us. If you are here this morning and you love Jesus, you are incorporated into the people that Jesus sends out into the world. We read that at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, when Jesus commands us, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is your mission. This is my mission. This is the church's mission. This is our goal and purpose on earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the clearest and most direct of terms, ordered each and every one of you, each and every one of us who loves the Lord Jesus to go into all the world proclaiming, heralding, holding out the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, holding out to lost sinners the reality of salvation offered to them by grace through faith in Christ. And if you followed Jesus for any length of time, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that this is primary to our role and call as a Christian. You know, right, if you've sat under sermons and if you've listened to telepreachers and if you listen to podcasts and you read books and you read scripture, you know that it is your duty as a disciple of Christ to speak to lost sinners about Christ. We know this, right? This is our responsibility. This is our obligation. This binds each and every one of us. And throughout Scripture, it is absolutely clear. It is ab- it was, it's, it's consistent and it is inescapable. And while we all know that this is the case, while we all know that we are called to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are some consequences and repercussions to faithfully living out this call that might surprise us. There are consequences and repercussions that we might not expect, and Jesus brings all of them to the forefront in this discourse to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. On this occasion, like we read, Jesus sent the disciples out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it would seem, based on the level of detail that Jesus gives throughout Matthew chapter 10, based on all of the instructions that he gives them, that they really had no idea what to expect as they went out on mission. They really had no idea what they would encounter as they went out in response to the call of Christ. They might think, 
based on the scriptures that they'd grown up reading and learning about, that the spread of the gospel of the kingdom, telling people that Messiah had come, that the Prince of Peace spoken of by Isaiah is now here, might inspire some excitement among the people. He's here? Where is he? I got to go meet him. These disciples themselves, as the ones who bring this excellent message of glad tidings, they might expect to be adored and loved for the fact that they are the ones who get to herald this message, who bring the great news that the Lord is here, that the Messiah has come. But Jesus, however, knowing that the expectations of these 12 disciples would most definitely not prove to be the case, revealed to them in Matthew chapter 10 a number of consequences, a number of dangers, a number of responsibilities and realities that bearing witness to him might bring from the peoples to whom they witness. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 7, once again, Jesus sets out the duty. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, to proclaim here means to speak to verbalize, to tell people the message of the gospel. And Jesus will go on to say, what I've taught you in the dark, shout it out in the light. Shout it from the rooftops. Make it clear for everyone. State the gospel in words to the people around you. And while we are called to buttress our proclamation with good deeds, in no way, shape, or form do our good deeds replace the necessity for actually speaking the gospel to people. Our good deeds reinforce the message. They support the message. They don't replace the message. There are no alternatives given by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no justifications allowed or permitted for avoiding our call to proclaim the gospel to the world. But we know it's easier to do good things than it is to preach the good news, isn't it? So many ministries and parachurch organizations, so many of those organizations that we support maybe in the world that give out food, food kitchens and things like that, they all kind of started out as organizations whose sole purpose or primary goal was to preach the gospel. And they realized that preaching the gospel brought a lot of repercussions their way that they, weren't ha they didn't want. And so eventually the gospel gets moved, the social aspect gets brought up, and everybody goes and thinks that they're doing gospel work because they're handing out food. But handing out food, that's easy. Proclaiming the gospel is hard, which is why the gospel is what's always taken away and the social work is always put to the forefront. The social aspect makes me feel good. I like putting food in people's hands. They smile when I give them craft dinner. They don't smile when I tell them they're a sinner who needs to repent. However, putting food in the hands of sinners is not the primary mission or the primary goal. Telling sinners that they are sinners who need to repent and turn in faith and trust to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the primary goal, that is the mission. And in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Jesus promised to supply his disciples as they went out proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. 
He sent the twelve out and he told them, acquire no gold, no silver, no copper, no extra tunics, no extra sandals, no extra staffs, but instead trust in the Lord's good and faithful provision for you as you go out into the world on mission. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ told the twelve and he tells us to keep from being so weighed down by the world and the goods of the world Keep yourself from becoming so rooted in this world that you aren't willing or you lose your taste for obedience to the Lord's command to proclaim the gospel to the world. Instead, travel light. Disciples, be prepared to lose it all in order to heed and obey the work, the call of Christ to complete the work he's left for us. So Christ revealed the duty. He revealed the fact that he will supply his people as they go. And he continued this discourse concerning mission by setting out for the disciples and for us the consequences you might expect for going out into the world. As one sent by Christ to the world to preach the gospel to it, you are being sent by Christ in essence as a sheep among wolves. You see that right in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. meaning that the task Christ is sending us out on is a dangerous one, one that will perhaps issue in the wolves, meaning those in the world who are antagonistic to the gospel, it might issue in them delivering you over to the courts, who will in turn flog you in the synagogue or sentence you to painful physical punishments or maybe throw you in prison in general. The task of gospel witness might even lead to your being dragged before governors and dragged before kings. But even there, even in that situation, the task remains. Bear witness to them also. Bear witness to them about the wonderful news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. You, the true obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know, Jesus said, you might be hated by all for his name's sake. But if that is the case, if you are hated by all because you are a gospel-proclaiming, obedient servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he exhorts you to endure in 10.22. You see it? You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures will prove true, will reveal the reality and the genuineness of their faith. So endure, so keep going, so keep proclaiming, so keep telling. And along with the consequences for mission, Jesus also set out some encouragements for the twelve and encouragements for us too. When you face slander, when you face the hatred and anger of the world, know this, you are simply following in the footsteps of your master who himself experienced and endured the same treatment. Jesus also told the disciples, have no fear of the world because in the end, Christ's disciples will be vindicated. You will be proven right. You will be proven to have been one who truly loved the world, even though the world was consistently telling you that you're a vessel of hate and you're speaking negativity. You will be proven to be one who truly loved the world because you held out to it its greatest good in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on and says, have no fear of the world because the absolute worst thing that the world could do to you and I is kill the body. That's it. 
For the child of Christ, the killing of the body, all this means is transition from here into the presence of our greatest delight and joy, the presence of the Lord himself. So have no fear of the world and the hatred of the world because the Lord will usher you into his presence. And not only that, but the Lord, as, Matthew, as Jesus said in verse 31, 30 and 31, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord places great value upon you, his child. And nothing will come your way except that which the Lord permits, ordains, or decrees for his glory and your ultimate good. Now, knowing all of these consequences and encouragements, Jesus made it clear. Knowing all of these, our love for and our proclamation for Jesus ought to be in this world loud and bold and public. We ought to acknowledge and profess Christ before people and in so doing reveal to the world that we fear God more than we fear anything else. Because really, what can man do to us? What can humanity do to you? Nothing. Maybe, maybe, maybe they can make your life a little more difficult on earth. But what is that in the grand scheme of things? Nothing. But to deny Christ... To fear man more than to fear the Lord will end in his denial of you before his Father in heaven. Look at it in verse 33 of chapter 10. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's a choice set before you. It's a choice set before each and every one of us. Will you acknowledge and profess the Lord Jesus Christ to the world no matter what comes? looking forward to that great day when Christ himself will stand up and profess and acknowledge you before his Father in heaven? Or will you, out of fear of man, fear of losing out in this world, fear of losing friends or family or freedoms or jobs or comforts or anything else, decline Christ? Deny Christ. Keep it all quiet. Hold it all in. Wilt under the pressure rather than endure and thus prove to be one who, denying Christ, must live with the fearful prospect of being denied by him in the presence of your father, of his father in heaven. The choice is yours. But there is another rather stunningly large consequence to being a person who obeys Christ's call to mission. And we see it in our text this morning as we are confronted with the shocking truth of verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now how can that be? How can it be that the Prince of Peace comes to the earth to bring a sword and not peace? Well, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a call to repentance or turning from sin and faith to faith in Jesus Christ. And for some of us who love the Lord, this might not be such a big deal. We're like, yeah, we should repent. We should turn from our sins. Sin is dumb. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to love the Lord Jesus. But to the world, this is a most confrontational message. 
Preaching the word of Jesus is an affront to a self-absorbed, self-idolizing, narcissistic world. And while some of those to whom we preach the gospel will wonderfully hear and believe the good news of salvation and they will most amazingly take hold of the good news and believe in Christ and take hold of eternal life and forgiveness, others, however, with great, to our great sorrow and our great heaviness of heart, they will reject the message that we bring. And they will remain in their state of rebellion against the Lord. And they will continue on in their condition as an unforgiven enemy of God. And those who reject will fall into a number of categories. And you probably know uh, people from every category if you are out there letting your faith be loud. There are some who will flat out reject your gospel advances but remain in relationship with you. Remain in some sort of civil relationship with you. They might never bring up religion at all. They might never want to talk about it at all, but they're still your friend. Or they might be the type that makes snarky comments and sarcastic remarks about your faith in Christ. And you've got to figure out how to strategize for that. Or they might regularly engage you in conversation, asking questions about this Jesus that you profess. Everyone in here probably knows somebody in one of those categories that you're in relationship with. However, there is another group there will be those who are so enraged by your faith in Christ, by your commitment to his word, that they will mock you, they will try to make you feel guilty for loving Jesus and believing in his word and teaching his word. I've had people tell me that talking about Jesus and the Bible to certain groups of people is hateful and offensive, and it leads people to self-harm, but I reject that. That's a lie from the enemy. It is simply not true. The words of Jesus Christ bring life. They bring light. They bring healing to all who believe in them. If only people would believe. And some of those enraged people will break off relationship with you. Some of them might leave and you don't ever hear from them again, but some of them might actually turn hostile towards you. And as Christians serious about serving and serious about obeying and serious about proclaiming our Lord Jesus Christ, we must be prepared for any number of these responses. We can expect to meet with much the same responses as the apostles did. Paul, for example, preaching to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, we read this, that as he told the good news to the people, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again. Now, for some reason, though, we've kind of lost sight of this clear reality that Jesus brings a sword of division and hostility to the earth. I mean, we rightly focus on Jesus being the Prince of Peace because Scripture tells us that he is the Prince of Peace. And for those who trust in his name, he is the bringer of peace. For those who trust in Christ's name, he says to his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And for everyone who believes in Christ, scripture declares that you have peace with God, a wonderful blessing, the greatest blessing, where there was once hostility and once enmity. As we read in Romans 5, 1, we now have peace, where the apostle Paul wrote this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are also given the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to lead and guide us into 
ever-increasing levels of peace and harmony with one another as well. Those who are our brothers and sisters in in the faith, those with whom we are knit together by our shared interest in Christ. But to the world, to those who reject the Lord, to those hostile to Jesus, the gospel being brought to the world is a sword, a sword of hostility. We are called to herald the good news of Jesus to the world in full knowledge of the fact that this gospel message will be like a sword that cleaves asunder many of your relationships. And for so many, this is simply a consequence that is too difficult to endure, especially given what Jesus said next in our text. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies, listen to this, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Are you prepared for that? Jesus prepared the disciples on this day and prepares us in our day for the possibility, nay, the probability that should you choose to be open and transparent with your love for and faith in Christ, should you choose to obey Christ's call to witness and proclaim his name, you will perhaps face antagonism and open hostility from your nearest and your dearest earthly relations. Now, it's one thing to know that all men, right? Chapter 10, verse 22. It says there, all men will hate you, or you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's one thing to know that all men will hate you for the sake of Jesus. It's one thing to know that some faceless, nameless mass of people out there might hate you, might hate me. But to know that our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ might lead to what Jesus described in chapter 10, verse 21. The brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and put them to death. And all of this because you bear witness to Christ. That's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? It's one thing to know that there's a nameless group out there that hates you. It's another thing to put faces to the names. To know, as we see in chapter 10, verse 36, that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. To know that those precious faces that you have known and loved and supported might turn on you because you love Jesus. To know that the people you yourself have birthed or raised from birth might turn hostile to you. To know that the cute little babies that you're holding in your hands right now, cooing as you cradle them, might in years to come fold their arms and cut you out of their lives for the sake of Jesus. To know that the brothers and the sisters you've grown up with, you fought with, you laughed with, you cried with, you helped each other out of numerous jams and trials and situations might grow up to betray you or even deliver you over to death because you love Jesus. That's different than a nameless group, isn't it? To know that even that spouse to whom you've committed your life, to whom you've pledged and received the same pledge 
pledged vows to love and to cherish each other in sickness and in health and for better or for worse till death do you part. It's another thing to know that they might renounce those vows because of your love and your allegiance to Jesus. Look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And these are, according to Jesus, the costs and the consequences that might come with obedience to him. And it might be that even right now, some of you are grieving and heartbroken because you are enduring hostility from someone that you deeply love because you are committed to Jesus. And if that's the case, Jesus calls on you, even in the pain, even in the sorrow, even in the difficulty, to endure and to rest in his loving kindness, knowing that his love is more than enough for each and every one of us. Even in the pain, don't waver in your love for him. Jesus told us that we might endure such agonizing situations. And this conflict arises because Jesus has come to wage war against the darkness. He has initiated conflict with the enemies of righteousness. He has launched an all-out assault on Satan and his dominion. And all who have not truly bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ are at this moment, according to Jesus, children of their father, the devil, and their will is to do their father's desires, as Jesus said in John 8, 44. He was a murderer. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And you heard that correctly. It's a difficult truth that Jesus spoke. All who reject Jesus are at this very moment, according to Jesus, subjects of Satan. And they oppose Jesus with great vigor. So is it any wonder, therefore, that conflict and sword are the results of Christ's arrival? And knowing this, Are you prepared to wade into this conflict? Are you prepared to witness to Jesus amid the hostility, understanding that you're not bringing peace unless those to whom you witness repent and believe? But if they don't, you're not bringing peace, but you are instead bringing a sword of hostility. You are engaging yourself in an ongoing war against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to be a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ who enters the fray and as you bring the sword out, and we're talking about spiritual weapons here, no real swords, as you bring the spiritual sword out and you encounter bitter and hostile opponents from both expected places, meaning out there, and unexpected places, your very own household, will you endure? It's for this very reason that Jesus told the disciples to endure. He told them not to shrink back from the war or the consequences that might come. He said in chapter 10, verse 32 to 33, right? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words... Knowing what you are entering into, knowing the consequences of what might happen, your love for Jesus must still be public and obvious and tenacious and unwavering and resolute. Our allegiance to Christ must be transparent, transparent to all and without shame or hesitancy. 
And along with this shameless loyalty and devotion, our love for Jesus, as we see today, must be our supreme love, our foremost love, our preeminent, overriding, and chief love. It is Jesus we must love with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. It is Christ we must love with such enthusiasm and such fervency. It is Him we are to love wholeheartedly and with a peerless and unmatched devotion. It's a love that makes all other loves in this world pale in comparison. It is a love that is so superior to all others that they even look like hate in comparison. Right? That's what Jesus said in Luke. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a difficult command to say the least, is it not? Are we really supposed to love Jesus that much more than our mothers and fathers? Yes. Are we really supposed to love Jesus that much more than our own spouse? Yes. Are we really supposed to love him that much more than our own children? Yes. Are we really supposed to love Jesus that much more than our very own lives? Yes. The answer to all of those questions is yes. And Jesus will go on to say three times in the next few verses that anyone who loves another more than him, is not worthy of him. And so we must count the cost here, right? Love for Jesus and unswerving commitment to him will lead to conflict. Look again at verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 35. It says, For I have come to set a man, to set a man. That phrase, to set a man, means itself to divide and to separate and to turn one person against another. Now, we aren't going out to seeking to cause conflict, but conflict will naturally arise when you, saint of the Lord, with unwavering love for Jesus and complete loyalty to his word, bear witness without shame for him or to him. The gospel, while it is good news for the world will also estrange and tear apart families in the world. Again, look at what Jesus said in Luke's gospel in chapter 12, verses 52 to 53. He said, I tell you, from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And knowing that this is, the, this is a possibility, we, you and I, must not shrink back or hesitate from our supreme love for Christ. No matter who it is that hates you, no matter who it is that divides from you, no matter who it is that turns against you, you must have your priorities set right. Must be willing to lose everyone and everything if need be for the sake of Jesus Christ. You must be willing and prepared to lose even the closest people in your life, perhaps even your very own life itself, 
for the sake of Jesus. Because, look at what the text says, if you aren't, if your affection and your loyalty for him, anyone or anything else is greater than your affection for and loyalty to Jesus, you are not worthy of him. Look at it in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And again, in the very next line, son or daughter, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And again, in verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Three times Jesus makes this clear. When you see something three times, you've got to know it. Three times. Now, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. You need to realize something here. In ancient Near Eastern cultures like that of Israel, and much like Eastern cultures in our day, the extended family held a prize, a highly prized and valuable place in one's life. It's not like now where people uh, separate from their families for pretty much everything and disrespect the seniors and disrespect their grandparents, and that's kind of our culture, but in this culture it was a lot different. And one of the worst things you could do as a son or a daughter is bring shame to your family by turning your back on the family patriarch. This could bring a number of unpleasant familial consequences, like being cut out of the inheritance, for example. could bring a number of social consequences in that you are thought of and spoken of as one who brought shame to your family. And yet... Jesus made it clear, whatever the consequences, social, financial, familial, if your loyalty and love for them is greater than your loyalty and love for me, you are not worthy of me. And worthy here meaning, means you are not deserving of recognition from me as one of mine. Not worthy of recognition from me as one of mine. If you shrink back from your obvious, transparent declaration of Jesus in regards to your family, if you sheath the sword out of fear for losing relationships, out of fear for social and financial loss, you're not worthy of Jesus. And it's not just father and mother either, but also son or daughter. You see, that's the next verse, 38 or 37. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is for us, right? This is one of the most unwelcome and uncomfortable demands of Jesus that you can find in Scripture. And I remember a long time ago sitting in one of my master's degree classes discussing the place of family in the life of a Christian. And everybody in the class was going around telling their um, opinions and thoughts on the position of family. And if based on all of the listening, you might assume that they'd actually never read these words of Jesus. Because for some, their spouses and their sons and their daughters had seemingly taken the primary place of affection in their lives. And eventually they got to asking me what I thought. Never a safe decision. And so I led them to this text as the counterbalance. And I said to them, as Christians, we must be so careful to ensure that our priorities are ordered rightly. 
Yes, the family is one of the great blessings of our Lord to us. Yes, the family unit is in so many ways the training ground for any aspiring leader in the church. The Apostle Paul made it clear, right, in 1 Timothy 3. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Yes, parents are called to love their children and to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, all the while guarding against the temptation to love our family, to love our children more than we love our Lord. And in our day, even among professing Christians, it seems like children have become idols to their parents. As parents seek validation from their children, as parents seek friendship with their children, so much so that they stop disciplining their children. As parents seek to protect their children from any and every negative consequence in the world. If your child gets a bad mark in a class, call the teacher and say thank you. Don't go yell at the teacher. And so I said to the class, while at this point we had only had Noah, he was just young, my son, and I said to the class, you know, while I do love my boy, you know, he's got that big head, right, and he's chubby and he's cute and he loves it when I put him to bed and he gives me hugs and he, you know that baby smell, how babies, young kids smell, they always smell so good, you just want to rub your nose in the, in the kid and, and smell them because they're so cute. While I love my boy and I appreciate all of those wonderful things, I love Jesus more. And then I said this, which made them not very happy with me. <laughs> I said, if I knew that the Lord were calling me to the mission field in some far-off and dangerous place, where the chances were high that we'd live in some mud hut and while preaching, we all contracted dysentery or some other painful disease soon to pass on from this world to the next. That's what we would do. And you could see the stunned and horrified look from everyone in my class as I told them that I would put my kids in harm's way on the mission field for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might be horrified by that right now. But Jesus first. Jesus first. To love father, mother, son, daughter more than him means we are not worthy of him. Needless to say, the class didn't respond positively. A few wondered out loud how I could be so irresponsible. And they looked disgusted at me, disgustedly at me, as I told them that Jesus is my number one priority. He takes precedence over my father, my mother, my son, my daughter, even my wife. And for the first century Jew to whom Jesus spoke these words, it wasn't necessarily the children themselves parents love first and foremost, but everything the child represented as well. In cultures with higher mortality rates and where the continuation of the family line was of primary importance, in a culture where the end of your family line was a most terrible and devastating prospect, it really was a big deal for, them, for Jesus to say, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Would fathers risk the departure of their children for the sake of Jesus? Would they chance their children leaving the family and shaming both themselves and their parents? Would parents, for the sake of peace with their children and the future of their family tree, deny Jesus before those children? Jesus said, if they did, if you do, you're not worthy of me. So what about you? Jesus made it clear, allegiance to him over and above anyone and anything else. That's what he demands. And nothing less will do. Is Jesus your number one priority? Or does the prospect of sword and division cause you to shrink back from your identification with him? Are you willing to openly and publicly declare and profess Jesus regardless of the consequences that come your way? Regardless of the hostility that might arise from those closest to you? Or will you, for the sake of your family and some false peace, deny Jesus? Again, to deny Jesus means you're not worthy of him. To deny Jesus means that he will also deny you before his Father in heaven. And so the question is, who is your supreme primary, preeminent love. Now, you might be sitting here this morning saying, well, Jesus is my number one priority. I wouldn't deny him before my family, whether it be my parents or my children. And some of you might be saying, I don't even have children, so that's not even an issue for me. I love him. I proclaim him. I'll point people to his wonderful grace, come what may. But what about your own life? Do you love Jesus more than your own life? That's something every single one of us can come to can grapple with, right? Do you love Jesus more than your own life? Because look at verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The idea here that to take up your cross means to give yourself fully and completely to Jesus in total self-denial. These who take up their cross to follow Jesus, give themselves to the Lord Jesus, regardless of the earthly costs, regardless of what temporary earthly benefits we might lose, regardless of what relationships and what comforts we might lose. That's what taking your cross means. It is the turning of all that you have over to Christ and for his sake, risking the loss of it all. Now remember, a cross is a heavy, burdensome piece of blood-stained wood upon which others had been executed and upon which we ourselves die. Taking up your cross means walking through the bloodthirsty throngs as they shout crucify and as they shout insults and curses as they spit and hurl stones at you in your direction. The one carrying the cross has no rights, is powerless, and will soon die a bitter and agonizing death. This is the picture that Christ used for the life of a believer on mission in this world. And taking up your cross is not something for the faint of heart. And what are we to do when we take up the cross? Look what Jesus said. We follow him. Take up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. And follow here means to live your life in accordance with, in agreement with, in obedience to the instructions and the will of the Lord. Those who take up their cross are those who commit to living for Jesus no matter what comes to them in this life. Relational difficulties, strife, they all might tempt us to put the cross down. 
Our love for the world might tempt us to avoid that cross. But we are called to bear it. So every one of us here needs to make the choice, needs to count the cost, needs to decide what we are going to do. I pray that you choose wisely because taking up the cross in this life will mean difficulty in this life but glory in the next. And avoiding the cross in this life might mean some level of comfort and ease in this life but it means horrendous judgment and eternal terror in the next. Because, as verse 39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever finds his life, meaning whoever seeks to preserve and prolong a a peaceful life on earth by refusing to take up their cross, the one who lives for ease in this world, the one who denies Christ and relinquishes the call to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in order to keep life and loves and relationships in this world, they will lose their lives eternally. Those unwilling to suffer rejection in the world for the sake of your love and obedience to Christ will, in trying to keep your life, lose it forever. But whoever loses their life in this world for the sake of Jesus, and this is the key, for the sake of Jesus, not for the sake of anything else, but for the sake of Christ and Christ alone, because you publicly, transparently, and obviously acknowledge him, because your love for him is primary and unwavering, because you are committed to bearing witness to him in a world that is aggressively opposed to anyone who represents him, you will reveal true love for and faith in Christ. So how fearful are you of this world that you live in? How fearful are you of what this world can do to you, what this world will likely do to you, if you exuberantly go out and tell the world about him? What is it that you are here afraid to lose or sacrifice for the sake of Jesus? Where are you searching for life? Here in this world? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal? And I've heard all sorts of reasons from people for why they are exempt from this public service to Christ. I've heard them all. I've heard people tell me why they can't bear witness to Christ and none of them are convincing Not one. Is Jesus your primary love or not? That's the question this text throws at you this morning. Is Jesus the one you will acknowledge before men or not? Will you take up your cross and follow him or not? These are the decisions the Lord leaves to you. But know this, those who search for life here, those who prioritize life and comfort in this earthly life over faithful obedience to the Lord and the task that he's given us here on earth, those who will not sacrifice anything in this life will lose that life eternally. In my estimation, the trade-off just simply isn't worth it, is it? And if you are really into investing, I've got the best investment plan for you right here. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 
everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's the best payoff you can get for your investment. Well, let me just end here. I just want to, let's just say you are one who has avoided the labor. One who has denied the Lord Jesus and you're sitting here kind of like, my, I have, I have failed over and over and over. I have loved this world more than I've loved the Lord. I have not done my, I am not worthy of being recognized by Christ. If that's you, it's outstandingly good that you recognize that here this morning. And I want you to know based on God's word, that it is not too late. It is not too late to decide today to love Jesus preeminently and foremost in your life. And the great example of this denying Jesus and starting over again is found in the life of the Apostle Peter. As Jesus was on his way to the cross, Peter was following behind And people kept coming up to him and saying, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he would deny it and call down curses upon himself in in, in his efforts and in in his attempts to separate and divide himself from Christ. And so after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and specifically had a conversation with Peter. And he asked Peter this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is Jesus giving Peter another shot. This is the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus telling Peter, it's not too late. Do you love me? And Peter's answer, yes, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And so Jesus answered three times, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, follow me. And after this moment between Jesus and Peter, Peter's life was never the same again. After this moment, Peter boldly and courageously revealed his love for Jesus Christ at every turn and acknowledged Christ before men regardless of the cost, and he ended up paying for it with his life. And now, Peter has gained a hundredfold and has inherited eternal life. Peter is in the presence of the Lord and Savior that he loved. Peter is enjoying all of the good things that were promised to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that make everything that we enjoy here pale in comparison. It's not too late for you if your life is one that's been characterized by loving children or mother and father above Jesus, loving your own life above Jesus, loving your own comforts above Jesus. It's not too late. The Lord Jesus Christ asks you, like he asked Peter this morning, do you love me? If you do, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, follow me.
And I promise you, your life will never be the same. So the question goes out to you this morning. Do you love Jesus? If so, follow him. Lord, we thank you for your word and we praise you for setting out for us all of the consequences and the blessings and the repercussions and the costs of serving you. And Lord, we are so grateful that you've set it out all before us. We will endure difficulties in this world. People that we love will turn against us. And yet you promise us all of these wonderful blessings and all of these wonderful joys and all of these wonderful delights will be ours when we enter into the joy of our master and you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to say, yes, I love you and to turn over today a new disposition toward the world. Let us be public, transparent, and bold in our faith and let us love you supremely above anything and everything else. And as we face the trials, I pray that as a church, as a body, that we would weep with those who weep, and that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, and that we would walk with those who are suffering the trials of difficulty in relationships, that we would be each other's shoulders, that we would be each other's friends. We would support one another because uh, the world is against us and we need each other. And so we pray for this in the power and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.